I just think that's a great old hymn. And I think my favorite verse is the second verse. I don't know about you, but the older I get in the Christian life and the longer I walk with Jesus or try and walk alongside Jesus, the more I become aware of my own failures, my own shortcomings, my own attitudes that clearly must disappoint the Lord Jesus. And sometimes I sit down and I think, why on earth am I doing what I'm doing? Why on earth would God use someone like me who continually struggles with sin? Why does God do it? And then I think of this verse. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And I'm reminded from that little verse in the book of Romans and chapter 5 and verse 6 where it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I, I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Because I'm sure that many of you, like myself, struggle to understand the wonder of God's grace. This was written by a 22-year-old Irish lass from County Fermanagh back in 1863. But she wrote it in the context of a great outpouring of the grace of God throughout Northern Ireland in 1859, when thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women and boys and girls came to know the Lord Jesus in a personal and living way. She's seen so much evidence of God's grace so much evidence of God's mercy. And surely, out of that context, she was able to pen these beautiful words. I suppose Christ died for the ungodly is at the very heart of the gospel. And it's also at the very heart of the book of Isaiah that we've been looking at over the past number of weeks. Andrew, last Sunday morning, looked at the first of what is described as the servant songs. And this morning, we're looking at the last of those four servant songs. From Isaiah 52, verse 13, through to the end of chapter 53. Perhaps one of the most extraordinary passages in the whole of the Bible. But if you wanted to summarize it, what does it mean? What's it actually saying? You could simply put it in those words of Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. And of course, we know, as Andrew mentioned last Sunday, that this passage is ultimately pointing forward to the coming of Jesus and his death upon the cross. In fact, we know that from the very lips of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus says, It is written, 
and he was numbered with the transgressions. A direct quote from Isaiah 53. And then Jesus goes on to say, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Jesus himself declared that he ultimately would be the one who would fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. And even though this passage was written 700 years before the time of Jesus, nevertheless, it points so wonderfully to his coming and to his work upon the cross. And so this morning we're going to look at it. We obviously can't look at it in detail because we could spend four or five Sundays just looking at this one chapter. It's really a song or a poem with five verses or five stanzas. And each stanza or each verse is represented by three verses in our English translations of the Bible. And so what we're doing this morning is I'm going to spend uh, a little while reflecting on stanza one and stanza two. And then we're going to sing together. And then we're going to break bread together. And then I'm going to reflect for a wee while on stanza three and stanza four. And then we're going to sing again. And then we're going to drink wine together. And then I'm going to finish with a short reflection on stanza five and a final song. So that's why, in one sense, the sermon's starting a little bit earlier than normal. It's not to give me more time. It's to enable us to intersperse the message of Isaiah 53 with the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine, the perfect backdrop to such an extraordinary passage. So let's look at the first stanza for just a moment. See, my servant will act wisely. These are the closing three verses of Isaiah 52. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Before we're really introduced to the servant himself, before Isaiah begins to unpack what this servant is like, and what he is going to accomplish. He tells us at the very outset that in spite of what we are about to read, in the final analysis, this servant will be exalted and will reign with the Father. And so we read in the very first verse that we read this morning, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, and highly exalted. It reminds us, doesn't it, of what Paul writes in Philippians 2, where he says, he made himself nothing, but took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. For those of us who have been with us over the past number of weeks, you'll immediately, I hope, notice the parallel with Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, we're introduced to this wonderful picture of God, the sovereign God, upon the throne. Do you remember how Isaiah 6 was introduced? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And Isaiah takes those exact same words, he takes the same phrase, and he applies it to the servant. He applies it to the Lord Jesus and says, even though this man will be disfigured, even though he will be appalling to look at, even though he'll be crucified on a cross like a criminal, one day he will be lifted up and exalted and will share the glory of the sovereign God in heaven above. That's how Isaiah starts the passage. But he then, of course, goes on to explain to us that this servant would be someone that many people would find appalling. And so hence the heading. This servant, this Christ, would be both repulsive and redemptive. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. We know that Jesus was taken and scourged. And that scourging involved being whipped across the back with a whip that included bits of metal and bits of bone, and it simply tore chunks out of the flesh. Many men, many warriors, died simply from the scourging itself. But Jesus, after his scourging, is forced to carry the cross to Calvary. But he is so weakened by the scourging that he is unable to carry the cross the whole way to Calvary's hillside. He is bleeding. His back is ripped apart. And by the time he finally hangs on that cross, he looks appalling to use Isaiah's language. He looks almost unhuman as he hangs upon that cross, disfigured. Of course, the gospel writers don't emphasize the physical suffering of Jesus in the way that we have it described here in Isaiah 52. They're far more concerned to talk about what the cross actually accomplished And so we actually find that in the third verse here. But it says, He is able to cleanse the sinner and make us fit for God. What it says is, He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths 
because of him. Many will be appalled at Christ. But as a result, many nations will be sprinkled. And again, Isaiah is using a metaphor there which would enable the people of God to recall the practice of the Israelite priests. Whenever, for example, a leper was cleansed, often the high priest would anoint him with water or oil or sometimes blood. And it was a sign that this man who was defiled had now been cleansed and was welcomed back into the family of God. Or you might remember on the Day of Atonement that the priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat so that Israel could be made fit for the presence of God. And so he takes that analogy and he says this appalling figure, this servant disfigured, this person hanging on a Roman cross would ultimately sprinkle the nations through the ignominy of the cross, through the shedding of his blood upon the cross, men and women, countless men and women, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions upon millions of men and women from throughout the nations would be sprinkled by the blood of Christ and find forgiveness through the Son. But let's go on to the beginning of Isaiah 53 itself and those first three verses, which is really the second stanza of the poem itself. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's not surprising that people didn't respond easily to such a message. Who has believed our message? Well, why would you believe such a message? It's ridiculous. This man, disfigured, appalled, turn your face away, hanging on a Roman cross, mocked by those in authority, this, the saviour of the world? Who would respond to such a message? And so again, we are reminded of Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, we preach a crucified Christ. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness. Can't you see how stupid this message must sound in the eyes of many in the first century? Can't you see how stupid and ridiculous this message must seem to the men and women that you work with, to people in your family, to people in this community? 
This appalling, disfigured person dying naked on a Roman cross. The hope of the world. It's ridiculous. And so Paul goes on to say, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so he goes on to reinforce this message about the nature of the Savior, the nature of this servant who would give his life for us. Yeah, he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Over the last few weeks, I've been making a number of hanging baskets. Um, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight at the last count. And uh, I'm quite pleased with them. I mean, I think most of them are doing pretty well, despite the weather. But I was going down past one the other day, and there was a little fuchsia that I'd planted in one of them, and it was looking a sorry state. Do you know, the others were growing pretty well, but this little fuchsia, like the leaves were turning black, and it was all spindly, and it really wasn't going to add anything to my hanging basket. So what did I do? I simply pulled it out and put it in the green bin. That's the image we have here of the servant in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Something that you would throw in the green bin. It wasn't worth looking at. It was never going to be something of beauty. That's how this Christ figure is described. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So why on earth would we bother? We preach Christ crucified. How ridiculous. How stupid from a worldly wisdom perspective. And he goes on to say, this servant was despised and rejected. This was meant to be the savior of the world. This was the one who ultimately would be at the pinnacle of God's great plan of salvation. (laughs) But despised and rejected. A man of suffering or a man of sorrow and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. This figure, this servant figure, who one day, as I reminds us, lest we forget, would one day be high and exalted, is hanging on a cross. He looks appalling. He's disfigured. He's beyond human likeness. There's nothing in his appearance that would make him attractive. 
he was rejected and held in low esteem. And yet that's the message we preach. We preach a crucified Christ. And so throughout the world today, people will look at the Christian church breaking bread and drinking wine and thinking, what on earth are you guys up to? And yet here this morning, many of us are going to take bread in a few moments' time. And as we take that bread, we remember that crucified, distorted figure upon a cross. And in our hearts, we give thanks. So we're going to sing together, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. But for those of us who know Christ, we do it with joy in our hearts and we sing together. <coughs> Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's a ridiculous message, but it's a message that saves and a message in which we rejoice this morning. We're going to stand, and after we sing this together, I just want three or four people within the congregation just to pray, just to pray out loud. We'll remain standing. And um, just a, a sentence or two at the most, just reflecting in your prayer what we've been sharing from the scripture already this morning and from this great hymn that we're now going to join in together. So let's stand as we sing this together.
remain standing in just three or four just short prayers of thanksgiving to God for his crucified son. Hallelujah. What a savior. So let's take this bread that reminds us of his broken body. Please be seated here. And so let's move on to the third stanza here in Isaiah 53. The prophet writes, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We discover, thirdly, that this servant, this servant who in many ways was repulsive but would be redemptive, that this servant whose message seems ridiculous before a watching world, that he endured the cross for our sake. He was pierced for our transgressions. And in those three verses that I've just read, only a few lines, you'll notice that in almost 12 occasions, the words we, us, our, are there. Let me read them to you again. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I really appreciate this painting by Rembrandt, simply called The Rising or the Raising of the Cross. But you'll notice there a little figure at the feet of Jesus. And it's clearly not someone from the first century. It wasn't one of the figures that stood around Calvary. We discover that it's a painter wearing a blue berry. It's actually a self-portrait. It's, if you like, an artist's selfie. Rembrandt paints himself at the heart of the picture because he realized that as he painted this picture of Christ having been scourged and nailed to the cross and now being lifted up 
on Calvary's hillside that he, in all his ungodliness, that he, in his sin, was there on Calvary's mountain. That he played his part in nailing Christ to the tree. And it's so important for each one of us here this morning to realize that this is not some theoretical essay that I'm presenting this morning. Something that it applies only in some distant way to other people. This is something in which each and every one of us is intimately involved. We were part of what took place on Calvary's hillside. It was our sin that led to Christ dying upon that cross. James Denny, an old Scottish theologian, long since dead, he wasn't exaggerating when he wrote, mysterious and awful as this thought is, it is the key to the whole of the gospel. For our sake, God actually made the sinless Christ to be sins with our sins. The God who refused to reckon our sins to us, reckoned them to Christ instead. He goes on, Moreover, Christ became sin for us in order that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our sins were imputed or transferred or laid upon the sinless Christ in order that we sinners, by being united to him, might receive as a free gift a standing of righteousness before God. Many Christians down the centuries have meditated on this wonderful exchange that took place on the cross. My sin upon him, his righteousness upon me. Indeed, way back in the second century, in the epistle to Diognetus, the writer puts it like this. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Martin Luther, whenever he was writing to a fellow monk who was struggling with his sin and with his guilt, he wrote to him and he said this, Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and to say, Lord Jesus you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. 
yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not, nor ever could be. Isn't it wonderful how in the heart of Isaiah 53 we have this beautiful explanation of the atonement. Beautiful explanation of what actually took place when Christ died on that cross. My sin upon him. His righteousness upon us. It seems ridiculous. It seems far-fetched. Through the mind of human wisdom, we can never calculate or understand it. But in the mystery of God, in his eternal plan, God used the sinless Son to bring (coughs) forgiveness and reconciliation to a world that didn't deserve. And then on to this fourth stanza. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was laid like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You see, this servant... This servant who was appalling to look at. This servant who was disfigured more than any other man. This servant who was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah reminds us, he did it willingly for us. Oh yes, There was a big miscarriage of human justice. (laughs) He was without deceit. He committed no acts of violence. There was nothing that could, humanly speaking, justify his death upon the cross. But the Bible tells us he wasn't simply overpowered by the Romans. He simply wasn't crucified at the mercy of of Pontius Pilate. He willingly laid down his life for us. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And as we read there in verse 8, who cared? After describing 
his path to the cross, like a lamb to the slaughter. No protesting like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he didn't open his mouth. Yet who of his generation protested? There weren't thousands on the streets saying, this man is innocent. This man doesn't deserve to die. And is it any different today? As I said before, we took bread throughout our world. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. And for many people, they simply do not care. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who have come to know the grace and mercy of the cross, we do care. We revel in his love. And we take wine and we drink it as a reminder that through the shedding of his blood, we have found forgiveness for our sin. We're going to sing, he was pierced for our transgressions. We're going to sing it through a couple of times. And as with the bread, if you remain standing at the end of the song, and again of just two or three, would just lead us in simple expressions of thanksgiving to God for all that Christ has done for us. That would be wonderful.
remain standing and let a couple of folks just give thanks. So take this wine that reminds us of his blood that was shed. Please be seated. And so to the closing verse, or the closing stanza. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here in this final stanza, we are reminded that this disfigured figure upon the cross, who willingly gave his life for the transgressor, would arise victorious. We are reminded at the very outset that all of this was part of God's wonderful plan. As Ron prayed, it's difficult for us to get our heads around. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. From the very depths of eternity past, God chose 
because he loved his world so much that one day he would send his son into the world to die so that we might live. And they were also reminded that following on from this awful death upon Calvary, he would see the light of life and be satisfied. There would be resurrection, not only for Christ, but there would be new life granted to millions of others as a result of the darkness of Calvary. And then it says, he will be satisfied. There are different ways to understand that. And if we were simply spending a morning looking at these verses, we could look at different options. But in many ways, we simply see here an acknowledgement that in the final analysis, Christ looks upon the consequences of Calvary and is satisfied with its outcome. A few months ago, not only was I doing hanging baskets, but I'd got an old white Belfast sink, probably double the normal size. And I'd brought it over and probably broken the springs of my wee car from, from Bangor from my dad's garden after he died. And I originally had it in the back garden and I decided to move it to the front. And uh, you can hardly lift the edge of it, uh, even with, it's just very difficult. Anyway, I'll not explain how I managed to do it. But uh, I managed to get it round to the front and put it on blocks and put wee flowers in it. And, and uh, you know, I, I went away back into the middle of the cul-de-sac and just looked at it and thought, do you know, that's a good job. And uh, I, I'm pleased with the way it looks. And even though it's hard for us to understand as well, and even though the cross was something terrible, something awful, yet there was something ultimately fulfilling and satisfying about what was achieved on the cross that day. In fact, there's a hint further down where it gives us this military analogy about dividing the spoils after victory. And the implication there seems to be that we are the spoils of victory. That Christ looks down upon his church throughout the world and he sees men and women breaking bread and drinking wine and worshipping him, and in love with him, even though we don't understand it. He sees us standing with our hands raised, worshipping the Christ, who is the Son of the living God. And in one sense, we are the spoils of the victory that was achieved upon the cross of Calvary. And as he stands back in heaven... (coughs) He looks down and he's satisfied because the will of the Father has been accomplished. A people has been redeemed. A people that would join him and his Father with the Spirit in eternity and worship him forever around the throne.
So let's do that in our final song as we close this morning. What a beautiful song. I think one of my favorites in the last year or so. The moon and stars, they shine. So let's sing this with real sense of appreciation for all that Christ has done for us.